Everybody said, Amen. That is just a taste of what you have to look forward to tonight in our Generation Hymns. That is going to be just a wonderful time of fellowship. Not just our choir will be there, we'll have a number of guests with us. And if you've gotten here early on Sunday nights in the last few weeks, you know just how incredible that will be. So I encourage you, encourage you to be here. Caught in the act. Has anybody ever, ever been there? You know, maybe you were, you were caught singing in your car, or, or you, you, were, you were caught doing something, maybe just doing something that you flat out shouldn't have been doing, something wrong, and, and, and you got busted. You know, the media loves stories about people getting busted. Sometimes so much that I, I, think, I think sometimes they make up stories where they're really aren't any stories. I think about our American swimmers down there in Rio a couple of weeks ago. You know, at first it looked like they were victims, and then it looked like they were, you know, busted for not telling the truth, and now it looks like maybe the whole thing, you know, was just, uh, maybe wasn't completely made up. But either way, you know, busted. Have you ever, have you ever been there? Maybe, maybe not that kind of, you know, public stage kind of situation exactly, but, but has, has something like that ever happened to you? You know, caught caught with your, your hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. Maybe a, maybe a teacher caught you with a, with a cheat sheet, or, or maybe a, a parent caught you in a, in a lie. Maybe, maybe your, your spouse confronted you with something that, that maybe you were doing behind her back, and the only thing that you could do was just, you know, own up to it. Bust it. Well, not to be the, the bearer of bad news, but but whether you've been there or not, at whatever point of life you find yourself, odds are you will find yourself in that position at some point before you die. How do I know? Well, I know because the Bible tells us in the book of Numbers, God tells His people, He says, your sin will find you out. And usually your sin will find you out on this side of eternity. And no matter how we think about it, that's really not a bad thing. On the contrary, being, being caught doing something that's wrong is a, really, it can be an incredibly good thing, however embarrassing it may be. Yes, being busted in sin will certainly have its, its consequences. You know, if you're, if you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, you know, no more cookies, right, for a while, okay? But, but those, those temporary painful consequences pale in comparison to the consequence of, of going through life as a prisoner to yourself, as a prisoner to your addiction or your, or your fear or whatever it is that you're caught up in. Being busted is really the best thing that can happen to us because if nothing else, it gives us the opportunity to really step back and to evaluate who we are. And while that can be extremely painful, it can also be the beginning of turning things around. And that's huge because when you really think about it, when you really think about the whole scope of eternity compared to the little bit of temporary pain that we might experience on this side of eternity, well, really, there's no comparison. If getting caught sets us on a path of righteousness and on a path of forgiveness, then that's, that's an incredibly good thing. But it's never a pleasant thing, of course. So today, that's what we're going to think about. 
we're going we're gonna to think about how to respond when we are caught in our sin. Because the reality is, we usually don't respond well. Usually we don't. As human beings, it's not our tendency to do the thing that we're going to talk about doing today, to respond the way that we're going to talk about responding today when we are confronted with sin. Because you see, when we're caught in sin, our first instinct you know, is to hide, right? You know, move, move into, into denial mode. You know, hey, listen, I, I saw you do that thing. Well, no, you didn't. That was, that was, that was a figment of your imagination, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. And we see this all throughout the Bible. First thing Adam and Eve do when they're caught in their sin, right, is they, they hid from God. You remember that? Uh, David, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and she gets pregnant, you know, busted, right? First thing David tries to do, he tries to cover it up. And it was a cover-up that eventually led to murder. That's our first instinct. When we're, when we're caught in sin, we, we hide from it. We deny it. We, we bury it. And then when that doesn't work, you know, we move to blame. Okay, maybe, maybe I did it right, but the reality is it wasn't my fault. That's the, it's the way I was raised, you know, or it was, it was because of something terrible that happened to me, or, or, or my spouse made me do this somehow. And again, this is nothing new. Adam and Eve, they, they did this as well. When God confronts them with their sin, immediately they move to blame. You remember that? Adam blamed Eve, you know, the, the girl made me do it, okay? And Eve blames the devil, you know, the, the snake made me do it. And, and, and as their progeny, we've been doing that ever since. So when we're busted, we hide, we, we blame. Oh, and then, then so many times, we attack, right? Now, this is, this is kind of like blame, only it, it goes a step further. Um, instead, of, instead of blaming our failure on other people, we just, we kinda, we just try to position ourselves so that we don't look as, as bad as other people, right? Yeah, so, so, so what if I lie, okay? You know, people lie all the time. You know, look at, look at Steve over there. He's, he's always lying about something, right? Apologies if your name is Steve. I, I just brought that one out of the air, okay? So, so we do these things, right? And really, it just, it just makes things worse because, you know, we still feel like garbage, and now we've brought other people down with us. So, so what's the answer? What are we supposed to do when we're confronted with sin? Well, to answer that question, I want to invite you to go with me to this passage that we read together earlier. Again, it starts in, in John chapter 7, verse 53, very last little verse of John chapter 7. And it goes down to chapter 8 and verse 11. Verse 11. Now, if this is, is your first time to be with us, or if you hadn't been with us in a good while, uh, you should know that we are in this extended sermon series on the gospel of john okay we've been looking at this book together off and on since the beginning of the year okay and we're just now getting to chapter eight okay and there's like 13 more chapters after this so we're not even halfway but uh but man the the stuff that we have seen in this book the things that we've learned here about jesus i, I don't know about you but i've i've really enjoyed this series. But anyway, we're here, and in particular, uh, we're looking at chapter 8. In particular, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that, depending on what translation you're using, you may notice it either has the entire text in a footnote, 
or it may have it, more than likely it probably has it bracketed off with a footnote next to it. So for example, if you're using one of the, the Bibles that are there in the pew, that's the New American Standard translation of the Bible, the translation that I usually preach from, because if you're visiting with us and using that Bible, I want to be on the same page as you. But if you're using one of those Bibles, you notice that the text we're looking at today has these brackets around it, and there's a, there's a footnote there at the beginning of verse 53 that says, later MSS, or MSS is abbreviation for manuscripts, so it's, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And again, if you have, if you have a translation like the NIV or the ESV, you'll notice that this section is sort of set apart in its own section with kind of a disclaimer there that says, well, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And so, so we see that, and, and we wonder, okay, so, so what's going on here? What, what is this about? All right, and, and what's going on here is the translators are letting us see behind the curtain a little bit, okay? You see, one thing you have to remember Whenever, whenever you read a Bible written in English, okay, any kind of English, including the King James, anytime you read an English Bible, you are reading a translation, okay? Moses and Jesus and the disciples, they didn't speak King James English, okay? The men who wrote the Bible over a period of more than a thousand years, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they didn't speak King James English. Some of them spoke and wrote in Hebrew, and some of them spoke and wrote in Greek. And that's how the Bible was given to us, okay? It was given to us in Hebrew and Greek and a tiny bit of Aramaic, but mostly in Hebrew and Greek, okay? And so to get the Bible into the translations that we speak and that we use today, scholars throughout the years have acquired and used manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts, some of which go back all the way to the time of the apostles. And, and listen, I don't want to bore you with the details, but the fact that we have these manuscripts, the fact that we have the Word of God the way that we have it today, man, that is just an amazing thing. So for example, John Piper points out that there are 10, okay, 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, composed between like 58 and 50 BC. Okay, and all of these, he says, date from the 10th century or later. So like, you know, 1000 AD or later. Ten manuscripts for this historical work that nobody questions. You know how many manuscripts we have of the ancient books of the Bible? 5,801. 5,801 and growing. Archaeologists are still finding manuscripts, and it is amazing how consistent these 5,801 manuscripts are. They are amazingly consistent, more than 90% of the time, and in the places where they aren't consistent, there's no theological issue at stake at all. Now, why am I telling you this? Because you need to know that this book is trustworthy. Our God, in spite of so many odds, has painstakingly preserved this book for us so that we might read from it, so that we might learn from it, and so that we might be changed by it. But the reality is, some of those manuscripts 
are better than others. And that's what the translators are telling us here. They're saying the earliest manuscripts, in other words, those closest in time to the original text of the Gospel of John, and the best manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not contain the section of the Gospel of John that we're looking at today. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at this and studying this and and listen, let me just tell you, all the good conservative Bible scholars agree that the translators are right to give us this information. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, so why is this here? Does this, does this mean that we should you know, skip this part of the study of the Gospel of John? Or should we just you know, get, the, get a sharpie and just mark this out of our Bibles? And the answer to that is, of course not. God has given us this passage here for a reason, and the only way that this would end up in our Bibles today, if it wasn't a part of the original Gospel of John, is if it was something that really happened in the life of Jesus, and it was handed down verbally from the apostles to whatever scribe it was that stuck this into the Gospel of John somewhere around the medieval period. Now add, this to the, add to that the fact that this is a beautiful illustration of everything that, Je- that Jesus has been trying to con- that John has been trying to convey to us about Jesus. And this is, this is a no-brainer. This belongs here, and so we're going to study it today. All right. So that was, a, that was a lot of information, I understand, but I think it's important that we get to the background of this so when someone confronts you out there in the world with a question about a passage like this, you can answer them informatively, okay? So John chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11. Again, the question that we are asking is how do we respond when we are busted? And it's, a pro, it's an appropriate question. Because here we have a story about a woman who was busted, okay? Now, she wasn't the only one busted, and we'll get to that in a minute, but, but she was, as the passage tells us, caught in the act of adultery. And that's, that's a likely thing, okay? It's probably why this oral tradition was placed here uh, by, the, I believe, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, uh, where it was among these events that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. As I've, as I've shared with you before, the Feast was, uh, of Tabernacles was kind of a, a party feast of ancient Israel. Okay? I told you to think about it kind of like a Bonnaroo or, or Woodstock, but with a religious connotation. Now, to be clear, adultery and immorality certainly weren't approved as part of what happened at the Festival of Tabernacles, but these things were not unusual Either. So the, the religious leaders probably didn't have to go far to find a person, as the text tells us, caught in the act of adultery. Now again, uh, to be clear, they weren't concerned so much about the adultery as much as they were concerned about trapping Jesus. And that's really the first principle that we see here. Uh, a principle that we have to consider as we think about how we respond when we are caught in our sin. Uh, So, how do we do that? How do we respond when we're caught in our sin? You ready? You can write this down, okay? Sin is often exposed for religious reasons. We need to understand that sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. Sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. Now, just in case you've forgotten the story, Okay, the first few verses here set the stage. Uh, last verse of chapter 7. Everybody goes home, right? Everybody except for Jesus. Jesus doesn't live around there. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't have anywhere 
to lay his head, as he told someone once who wanted to, to follow him. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. That'll come up later. The Mount of Olives was one of Jesus' favorite places to hang out and, uh, and pray. We assume that's probably what he was doing there then. So Jesus spends the night on the Mount of Olives, and the next morning he comes back to town, and he starts teaching again. And apparently, in the middle of his teaching, some of these petty, childish religious leaders approach him, and they're dragging a woman behind them, humiliated. Now, we don't know the, her state of dress or undress, but we know as as I said earlier, that according to their testimony, they caught her in the very act of adultery. So you can imagine. Now, of course, I don't, I don't need to tell you that adultery is not a one-person sin, okay? You know, there's always more than one person involved, right? There's, there's a man involved here, but these religious hypocrites only bring the woman. Why? Well, because their motive wasn't really to uphold the law, their motive was, as D.A. Carson puts it, to, to hoist Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma. Okay, Verse 6 says they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They were trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus agreed that this woman was to be put to death because of her violation of the law of Moses, he'd be taking a position that, would be, that was contrary to everything he represented. Jesus was known for his compassion toward people just like this woman. If you remember, he was frequently criticized for his close association with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners. Okay, the, re, the religious leaders knew that. They also knew that if Jesus upheld the religious law here, he'd probably be putting himself up against the Roman leadership at the time. Jesus didn't have the governmental authority to put people to death, to sentence someone to death. But, but if, if he had said that, if he had failed to condemn this woman to death, he'd not only be seen as a pawn of the occupying nation, but he'd also be seen as lax on sin. And so really it was. It was, it was the horns of a dilemma for Jesus. Okay, It was a no-win situation for him. And the religious leaders knew that. That was their motivation. It wasn't to uphold the law. It wasn't to, to glorify God by, uh, by being hard on sin. It wasn't to bring back honor to this religious festival. It wasn't any of that. Their motivation in humiliating this woman, bringing her to public shame, their only motivation was evil. It was jealousy, and it was their perverse desire to kill an innocent man. That was their reason to expose this woman's sin. And listen, that still happens today. You're going back to the Ryan Lotke situation in Rio. That, that sin, whatever sin was there, that wasn't exposed for the benefit of that Olympic swimmer. That was, that was exposed for the benefit of the media outlets that exposed it. Network ratings, advertising compensation, more interest in catching someone in a lie than really getting to the truth of what happened. Sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. We see this in the media with regularity, and we see this in our personal lives. Whether it's jealousy, or, or, or to detract attention from, 
from our own sinful behavior, or whether it's just, just judgmentalism, you know, making others look bad in a, in a superior kind of way. And, and you know who's the worst at doing these kind of things? Religious people. People living under the law are incredibly bad about this. Law-keeping becomes a competition, okay? And so when somebody loses, everybody who sees themselves as winning just starts pointing fingers. You know, I knew he was lying the whole time. You know, how, how sad that she would go that far. I knew this would happen. I saw the warning sign. Sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. But, and pay attention to this, okay? Not always. Not always. No, you see, there are times when you're caught, when people catch you in your sin and confront you with your sin, and it's not sinfully motivated at all. I think, for example, about someone with, a, with an addiction who's being confronted with that, with the, with the fallout that that lifestyle brings. Listen, someone gets in your face about something that you're doing to destroy yourself, and that's, that's not always selfishness. That's, friend, many times, that's salvation, okay? They're, they're doing that to save you. They're doing that to get you out of the mess that you've stirred up for yourself, all right? So don't just automatically reject criticism because you think it's selfishly motivated. It's not always. Very often, it is for your good. Here's how you can tell the difference, okay? And this is important. Not just for those who are being busted, but also for those doing the busting, right? Okay? The difference between exposing sin for sinful reasons and exposing sin for the benefit of those caught up in sin is this. You ready? Selfishly exposed sin will be exposed to others before it is exposed to the sinner. Write that down and think about it, okay? It's really important. Selfishly exposed sin will be exposed to others before it is exposed to the sinner. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that when someone sins against us, the first thing we ought to do is go to that person and confront them personally with their sin. The first thing. Usually it's not, right? Usually it's not the first thing. Usually it's the last thing we do if we ever get around to doing it at all. We'd much rather talk about someone than to talk to someone. We'd much rather talk about someone's sin than to talk to someone about their sin. And that, friends, is sin. Jesus calls us to something better. Sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. And if you're exposing sin, you need to see to it that you're not doing it for sinful reasons. Another principle that we see here, okay? You ready? God always uses exposed sin to put us in a position to receive grace. That's the second principle that we see here. God always uses exposed sin. No matter what the motivation was to expose the sin, God always uses exposed sin to put us in a position to receive grace. So let's just say that you're like this woman, okay? You've, you've been caught up uh, you've been caught in your sin. And because, because there were sinful, evil motives involved, 
you've been used, you've been humiliated, you've been dehumanized, and you've been cast aside. Maybe you don't have to imagine very hard. Maybe you have been there. Maybe, maybe you're there right now. Well, one thing we can say for these evil religious leaders, no matter what their intention was, at least they brought the woman to the right place. Okay? Look at the second part of verse 6. But Jesus, we're told, stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did, did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. All right, some things I need to point out here. First, we don't know what Jesus wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay? We don't know. It would, it would be awesome to know what he wrote that day, and I've had... I've heard a bunch of people guess at what he wrote that day, but the fact is we don't know. So I could, I could stand here and I could tell you what I think that Jesus wrote or what other people think that Jesus wrote, but it'd be a waste of our time because the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. And because the Bible doesn't tell us, it must not be very essential to the story, okay? Now, Jesus tells them, he says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone, to throw a stone at her. And I love, I love the order in which they leave. It tells us a little bit about human nature. They went out, we're told, one by one, beginning with the older ones. You see, the older ones got it first. Now, they, they weren't repentant, because we see this sin crop up again later. I'm not suggesting that, but nobody knows his heart more than someone who's had it the longest, Right? The older we get, the more we tend to understand our motives. The more we tend to understand why it is that we do the things that we do. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but that's the tendency. But anyway, the oldest leave first and the rest follow. And pretty soon, it's just, it's just Jesus and this woman right there in the middle of the, of, the, of the temple court, the center court. Jesus straightens up again. He asks her where everybody went. Did no one condemn you? And then she says this, and I think, it's, I think it's really important. She says, no one, Lord. Not no one teacher, or no one, <clears throat> no one rabbi. She says, no one, Lord. And I think, there, I think there's more than a respectful title here. I think, I think here, in, in, in the way that, that, that Jesus handled this situation, Jesus recognized, I mean, the woman recognized Jesus for who he was. There's no way, no way that she could know all the details and, and know what was coming, but, but she saw enough to know, enough to understand that Jesus is Lord. That's important. You see, when sin is exposed, we can take two paths, okay? We can, we can either be defiant, you know, make excuses, give, give some half-hearted apology and just sort of move on, or we can recognize what's always been true. 
that you and I, we are not the Lord of our lives. We're not the supreme authority of our existence. That title does not belong to us. That title only belongs to Jesus. And when we recognize that, when we own that, when we give our lives to Jesus, that's when we receive grace. That's when we find grace. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. See, there's no condemnation when we turn to Jesus. No matter what the the gossipers are saying, no matter what they're whispering behind your back, no matter matter how they're condemning you, there's no condemnation when you turn to Jesus. Jesus said that. John chapter 3 and verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Friend, Jesus came to save you not to condemn you. And if you will turn to him when you are exposed, he will save you. He will. Sin is often exposed for sinful reasons. God always uses exposed sin to put us in a position to receive grace. And then third, only Jesus. Only Jesus can forgive sin and put us on the path to righteousness. That's really the ironic thing about this story. Jesus is the only one left standing there with this woman. The only one. Why? Because he's the only one qualified to condemn her. He's the only one in the room without sin. Okay, The only one really qualified to cast the first stone. And, and just picture this, Jesus, he's, he's stooping down there, he's, he's riding in the sand, taking the same position as someone who would, who would stoop down to pick up a stone to cast. But when Jesus stands up, there's no rock in his hand. There's no rock in his hand, there's only grace. Neither do I condemn you, either. And then verse 11, Go. From now on, sin no more. This is really the word I want beating in our hearts as we leave here today. You see, that's what grace does. It doesn't, it doesn't just look over our sin, you know, cast a, cast a blind eye toward it. No, dear friend, grace separates us from our sin. As far as the east is from the west, not just the consequences of our sin, but our habitual nature towards sin. Grace separates us from that. Grace puts the Holy Spirit within us and gives us the strength to resist temptation and depart ways from our sinful nature. Yeah, we're still going to fail. But we're not going to do that with joy anymore. That's what grace is. When Jesus... When Jesus takes that empty hand and he points with the word go, he's sending that woman on a journey toward freedom. Nobody else can do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And that's why the best thing we can do when we are busted, when we are confronted with our sin, when we're caught in the act, is go to Jesus. 
I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, sure, de- depending on what the sin is, there may be uh, apologies to make or you know, restitution that needs to happen. I understand that. But the main thing that needs to happen before any of that can happen with authenticity is, is you need to turn to Jesus. Turn to him when you are busted. Turn to him when you are caught in the act. But even better, turn to him before you're caught in the act. Turn to him before you're humiliated. Turn to him before you're discarded and forgotten. Turn to him before you hit rock bottom. And then maybe by his grace, you won't. Turn to Jesus. He is the only one who can forgive your sin. He's the only one who can put you on the path to righteousness. That's why he came. That's why he died. And that's why he rose from the dead to prove that his death has the power to forgive sin. Your sin and my sin. But for that to happen, we got to stop the cover up. We got to stop the pretending like we're innocent and we have to turn to him once you turn to jesus today once you give your life to him let me invite you if you will to stand with me just with your your heads bowed and your and your eyes closed